Welcome to the More Than 10 podcast, where we acknowledge the trauma healthcare workers and first responders experience every day and foster a safe place to discuss and process them. What's up, everyone? I'm Ashley, your podcast host, L&D nurse, new grad nurse, sister, friend, learner, all the things. And I'm, as always, excited to be here with you today. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Jeanette Zoko. She's a leader in the perinatal quality and safety. Um, she's been in this for 25 years and she has, again, so much experience in obstetrics and in the hospital setting. She has worked as a bedside nurse, charge nurse, clinical nurse leader, perinatal safety nurse, and quality improvement performance specialist. She's known for developing innovative perinatal quality and safety programs in collaboration with multidisciplinary teams and demonstrating improved maternal and neonatal safety outcomes. She's an expert in data analysis, quality improvement, patient safety, nursing education, clinical research, medical record chronology preparation, project management, multidisciplinary simulation, labor and delivery. Oh my goodness, must I go on? <laughs> no, but really, in team training and fetal heart monitoring education as well. She's just a a jack of all trades. Um, she's created a study guide for the National Certification Corporation Obstetric and Neonatal Quality and Safety Certification Exam. A mouthful, but essentially she's an author of this great new book that we get to talk about in today's podcast as well. Her experience includes both intra-hospital and system level perinatal quality and safety work in a large multi- institutional healthcare delivery system. She holds NCC certifications in inpatient obstetrics, fetal and heart monitoring, and obstetric and neonatal quality and safety. Um, in addition, she's certified in basic quality and safety from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and in simulation through Drexel University. So she's done so much and she has so much expertise, so much to learn from, and we are going to get into that today. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Ashley. Welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to be here today with Jeanette Zoko. All right, Jeanette. So we are very excited to have you here. I'm so excited to pick your brain like I was just telling you. Um, and let's just start off with, in your own words, tell us more about who you are, what brought you to where you are today. Sure. So I'm a registered nurse. Um, I've been a, a nurse for 27 years, and I've functioned in the role of bedside nurse, charge nurse, preceptor, nurse leader, and most recently author, entrepreneur, and business owner. Yay! <laughs> I know, I know, it's super exciting. Um, so the majority of my career I have spent in obstetrics and um, as a labor and delivery nurse, and then um, in a nurse leader role as a perinatal safety nurse. And that's really um, what brought me here today. Um, in that role, I did a lot of education, simulation, um, implemented team training, taught the A1 intermediate and advanced fetal monitoring courses. I did high-risk pregnancy planning, including developing an accreta program um, at my former organization, and ultimately just designed programs to improve outcomes and reduce harm to moms and babies. That's awesome. You've done so much. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and then... Uh, most recently, um, I decided I was going to write a book. So I created um, a study guide for the um, national, the NCC, the National Certification Corporation, has a number of certifications, uh, certification exams, and this is a study guide for the obstetric and neonatal um, quality, um, quality and safety certification. That's awesome. What a project for you, huh? 
It must be a cool experience going through that. And I can't wait. I have some questions at the end for you about that. I can't wait to like unpack that later in this interview. Um, so we'll definitely circle back to that. Uh, but I am curious, what sparked your interest in quality improvement in patient safety? So that's a great question. Um, and I would, I guess I would put that into two buckets. Um, to be with, so I had graduated with my master's degree in nursing education, and I had an opportunity to start working in, uh, to start doing simulation at my former organization. And when I started doing that, like, I knew nothing. So I had to start from scratch. I had to learn how to work the mannequin, how to take it apart, fix it, um, learn the technology, then learn how to actually put a simulation together. And then like the pre-work, bringing the team together, explaining what I was doing, because we hadn't done simulation at all in our organization. So I uh, brought a team together who eventually actually helped me um, facilitate those simulations. But in learning about simulation, I just started reading as much as I could. And simulation is linked to patient safety um, and improved outcomes. So it, that was sort of the tie-in. And, and as I started learning more, I just became more interested. As I started doing it, I saw the benefit. Um, in my early days, I did uh, shoulder dystocia drills and developed a, a rapid response team for shoulder dystocia, which is a, a, a difficult delivery for those who, who may not know, yes. um, where actually the baby's baby head delivers and shoulders get stuck. Um, so it's an emergency situation where um, you just, everyone has to know what to do and, and come together and with different yeah, roles. Yeah, because um, you don't have much time. Yeah. So um, it was great, you know, to see the benefit of that and have residents who come to me and say, yeah, we had a shoulder dissociate the other day and everything went great, just like our simulations and, you know, and baby did, you know, mom and baby did well. So I think seeing actually seeing what you are doing in the classroom happen at the bedside and work well was what really kind of stimulated the interest and and that growth in patient safety. Yeah, I can see that because it's it's you're seeing that what you're doing is making a difference and it's making people feel more prepared on all levels, whether it be the residents or the doctors or the nurses. And that's really that's really neat. I like yeah, that. yeah, absolutely. So, um, so it was that, and I think also um, in my earlier years as a labor and delivery nurse, having situations where um, you know, because labor and delivery can be a little dicey, right? Yes. I think all nursing can be, um, but certainly can be pretty challenging in labor and delivery. And there can, you can have situations where you're uncomfortable and you have to advocate for your patient. I think what makes, at least what made it harder back then, and remember, this is going back now 20 years, um, was there, we didn't have a standardized language around um, fetal heart monitoring, EFM interpretation. Not that it's, it's still a little gray, but it's, it's, we have more clear parameters now, but it was very gray then. And we had policies that were gray that would just say, oh, you know, with a non-reassuring fetal tracing, you're going to do this. Well, my definition of non-reassuring might be different from the physician taking care of the patient. Um, so it was really hard. And 
basically being in those uncomfortable situations, not having the communication tools, knowing that the outcome of the situation was going to vary depending on who my charge nurse was, who was on my team, if I had good mentors, the relationship I had with that provider, if that person was open to conversation and my ability to effectively communicate. And at the end of the day, there shouldn't be variation, right? There should be structure. So, you know, you take us to present day where there's standardized language. Um, There's structure around having conversations in situations you're uncomfortable with. It's called having a huddle. Um, Or there, there should be a chain of command on your unit. There should be team support around having those conversations. And actually, that's when I left. We had graduated to that and put that into place. But um, so, again, kind of coming from that situation where you feel like you're an island on your own and then knowing that there shouldn't be variation. We should have a very easy process that kind of takes the emotion out of it allows for other people to weigh in so that you can then have a plan that you're comfortable with and moving forward. I agree. And I will say from like a new grad perspective, I relied on protocols and guidelines to be my backbone for when I had to advocate for my patient. Um, And they really do help start the conversation. They help me have a backbone in the conversation when it comes to having that with the doctors, the residents. And like you said, there is still some gray area, but having this you know, universal language to be able to talk about it now more specifically is huge in allowing us to advocate for our patients and to truly, you know, approach them in a team perspective. Um, And I, I've come to be so appreciative of them. (laughs) I really have. (laughs) Um, So now kind of a switch gears here. I I did some digging into your website and I looked at some of your articles um, and I thought I found some like just some terms that I thought were so interesting that I think that ve- like very much kind of connects to where, where we're going to be going in this um, interview today. So first, I want to take the audience to a moment, perhaps after a high risk situation just occurred with their patient or with an individual um, in which they begin to question where they could have done better. They're starting to get that doubt in their mind. They're the, they're starting to kind of run through what happened in their head. They're thinking, what did I do well? What did I miss? Do I feel like I missed something? Um, and, you know, it's just, it's a rabbit hole really from I can speak from experience with that. Um, but in these moments, doubt creeps into our brains, like I said. So it's important to combat that doubt with perspective uh, and one way we can define and interpret that feeling is with the word error, which I saw come up in some of your articles. So can you speak to human error and how we may define it? Sure. So um, human error is, it's actually unpredictable. Um, and it's essentially a failure in the way that we might perceive something, might perceive an event, Um it's, the, it's a failure in the way we think about something or behave. It's not a behavioral choice, though. We don't choose to make an error. Hence the phrase to err is human, right? Yep. So there's different reasons why errors can occur. You can have um, endogenous coming from within or exogenous outside causes. So an endogenous cause would be like, you know, we make a mistake because 
or we make an error because we're anxious, we're stressed, we're really tired, right? And that predisposes. Um, or it can be something from the outside, um, something within our environment that contributes to an error. So that could be like lighting or distractions, or maybe it's inadequate staffing. Um, so you're, you're overloaded with your assignment, you miss something, um, or it could be technology that doesn't work properly or has design flaws. Um, so <laughs> I actually have a good uh, exam example of yeah, an error. That was really good <laughs> if you want it. So um, this is the Washington Manual of, of Patient Safety and Quality Improvement, and it's by um, Emily Bondine, Michael Lane, and Andrea Benucci. Um, so they had a really good example of a scenario in which a patient was on was on a medical unit and on tele, and uh, she was getting a um, pick line inserted, and the pick nurse, while she was doing it, the tele became disconnected. It kept, came the cord became disconnected from the actual machine. So the nurse plugged it back in, saw that the, the rhythm came up and then went along her way. Well, sometime later, the primary nurse taking care of her noticed that it wasn't transmitting on the monitor at the central station. So she went in to see the patient and the patient had actually gone asystole. So, you know, and they had to code her and that whole nine yards. So in this situation, the pick nurse had actually plugged the cord into the wrong port on the tele-monitor device. Oh. Okay. So while she plugged it in and it was reading in the room, it wasn't transmitting to the nurse's station. Oh, wow. So the the only way you would see it is if you walked into the room. Yeah. Okay. And so it's, it's an exogenous error. And I'll, I'll tell you why, okay. if you ask me the next question. Yeah. And she already <laughs> knows. Cause I told her, I told her, I want to ask you about the person versus system approach um, when addressing errors. So okay. go ahead, elaborate, take it away. <laughs> okay. So we'll circle back to that example. Um, so the person versus system approach is a way of, of looking at errors. Okay. So where it comes from is James Reason. He was a, a professor of psychology. He was an expert in human error. And you may, people often know about the Swiss cheese model because it's in a lot of high reliability courses. Well, he was the, um, he developed that, okay? So he described two approaches in viewing and managing human errors, the person versus the system approach. So if you use the person approach, you're, you're gonna think about errors resulting from something that the person innately did wrong, like deficient mental processing. So they made an error because they weren't paying attention. They weren't motivated. They were forgetful or they were just careless. Okay. The solution for the person approach is fix the human behavior. Okay. So you, <laughs> and I see this as old school. Yeah. Um, so basically Tell the person to uh, do a better job paying attention. Um, almost like almost like a reprimand. Yes, re-educate yeah. and and education. I'm a huge fan of of education, um, but it really is it's a weak countermeasure. Mm. Okay, um, but the solution again with the person approach, re-education, um, 
um, letting them know to, to pay more attention, um, discipline. It could even be blaming or shaming. Um, this could also include creating policies or procedures, um, creating a new one or adding more steps to another one. Um, at the end of the day, this is not an effective approach, as you and, can probably gather. Yes, right? and I, I will like to say that I feel that sometimes people do this to themselves. They leave the they leave something that went wrong and or they, you know, a situation that just happened and it ended in a really bad outcome. And they're like, it was me. What did I do? It was all me. What mistake did I make? And while there's things that they could have changed, I feel that they're already reprimanding themselves, you know, and it's time to know it's not effective. It's not healthy. And that's not going to make you a better healthcare employee, a better nurse, a better first responder. That's not. Yeah. And that's such a great point. Um, and, and if you, I mean, we, we should work in places that have a, a positive reporting culture. If you're reporting that errors that errors occur, oftentimes they are, um, you'll find themes. It's happening to other people for certain reasons, right? Medication errors might be happening because they're sound alike, look alike. And that means, you know, that's on leadership to fix that. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, whereas you think, oh, it could be me, but. It's you you don't necessarily know that until you start digging into it. And the majority of the time, it's not the person because people don't intend, you know, come to work doing things intentionally. But sometimes we set people up for that in the system because of the systems within which we work, Mm -hmm. which is the next um, approach, a systems approach. So if you use a systems approach to viewing errors, you're going to dig a little deeper and figure out why did this occur. Um, and typically it's it's like poorly designed systems. It could include things like um, technology, lack of standardization, processes that are really long and convoluted that no one's ever going to remember or no one ever even knows where to reference, you know, yeah. Um so if you go back to the example with the telemonitor, um, when they dug deeper into that, what they found was if you looked at the back of the machine, there were three ports that the plug could fit into. Okay, so the plug fit into every single one, but there was only one that transmitted to the uh, central nursing station. So if you worked there, you know, you had to know which one was the one. Yeah. which is a horrible design yeah. because anyone could come along and make that same mistake. Why would, why would you do that? So the solution was uh, engineering or whoever came in and they put a panel over the two ports that shouldn't be used so that there was only one option that pe- people could pick. Right. Yeah. So that's a great solution. That would be a systems approach solution. Um, and now, a strategy when looking at this and looking at the systems approach that healthcare teams typically address errors with is with a debrief. So if something happens, there was a mistake, there was an error, um, or you know something unexpected happened with a patient or a scene, um, and they do a debrief. In your own terms, can you describe what a debrief is and why it's important for first responders and healthcare workers to be involved in it? Yeah, so debriefing is, it's a structured communication event where people come together um, and it's really intended to evaluate the team response, um, not individual performance, 
as an individual, you wouldn't reflect on your own um, experience and performance, but it's not meant to call people out. It's more of how did we do as a team? Um, and is there anything we could do to improve? And it is, it's so important. It's important in, um, in that it can help develop high functioning teams. It's important in that it can identify things that need to be corrected um, to make things easier for the team and better for the patient. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I had experience actually in, in bringing in debriefing um, for a team as part of our team training program years ago. Um, so it was, and it was very well received and we got a lot of, of great information from it. People give great suggestions for change. Um, and when you implement those changes, it does make their workflow easier. Yeah, definitely. And now when they're in this room, having this debrief, what should it look like? How should it be structured? Cause I feel like there's a lot of, um, gray area with that. A lot of people don't really know how it should be structured, where the conversation should begin, what they should touch on in this debrief. So I think it's important, um, first of all, before you do debriefing, that you introduce it to the team. So like I said, we, um, you know, we introduced it as part of a team training program, which meant we gave the background on why it's important, right? Um, and that sets it up for being well-received, okay? Because you want people to again, understand why it's important, what's in it for them. Exactly. So, so you set the stage first. And then um, when you're doing the debrief, I mean, you, you obviously need a leader, right? So that's the structure. A checklist is helpful um, because then you have a structured format and kind of going through that, um, the questions. Um, and then you just, I mean, you, you give people an opportunity to speak, right? So there's different checklists that you can utilize. AHRQ has a debrief checklist and it has a couple of questions. Was the communication clear? Were roles and responsibilities understood? Was situation awareness maintained? Was the workload distribution equitable? Was task assistance requested or offered? Were errors made or avoided? Were resources available? What went well? What should improve? So, and, and there's lots of different checklists out there that you could probably pull up and use. We had a standardized checklist that we use, but um, oftentimes I would just say, what went well? What could we have done? What, or was there anything that could have been done differently? And we are, are there any key takeaways? And then what was really important, if any changes needed to be made in moving forward, there was also a feedback loop to make sure that leadership heard those changes and then could implement them in moving forward. That's interesting. Can, yeah. you, can you talk a little more about that feedback loop? The feedback loop. So, um, so we initially, actually, when, when we rolled out an obstetric rapid response team, we asked for the charge nurses to, as part of the debrief, fill out um, a, like a paper tool that we had put into place. Um, and we put it in like a certain place on the unit. They knew where to grab it. Um, and then they handed it into the nurse manager. 
So basically that was the feedback loop. They were filling out the tool. What we were able to learn through this tool was, um, so a couple of things, actually. We were able to learn that um, NICU was initially part of our OB stat team, our OB rapid response team, which we were calling for hemorrhages at the time. Um, and essentially they were getting pulled away to respond to these hemorrhages and that wasn't useful for them. Yeah. So we took that feedback and we said, okay, we need to develop a different code. We need to develop a hemorrhage code because these folks need to stay with their babies and we want to utilize their time effectively, right? So with that feedback loop, with the paper, basically those papers that we collated, we were able to say, oof, this is a recurrent theme here. We need to change things, yeah. okay? So that was one example. And feedback loop, I mean, how easy it to put together like a survey with a QR code nowadays, just have the QR code readily available for whoever is doing the debrief. Um, they could access it on their phone, fill out a quick little survey, and then that could go to leadership and that could be your feedback loop. That's awesome. And that's nice to know because Debriefs are for the people that were in the situation, but they're also important for initiating that change. And like you said, it all goes back to that systems approach. You know, how can we make our system better and healthier and more effective? And that's a really good way to do that with that feedback loop. I like that a lot. So how should people leaving a debrief? Actually, I do have one more question about a debrief. Is it effective to go through what happened moment by moment? No. And I think that's important because I feel like that's the initial thing that a lot of people may go to in a debrief. Like, okay, talk about what happened moment by moment. Yeah. I mean, there might be a, a need to touch upon, you know, like a quick sort of summary of what happened. And if people have questions, give them an opportunity to ask questions. Typically, if you like, if you're starting with going back to that simple approach of what went well, people will kind of, you know, they'll list out things. What do you think we could have done better? And that's where they'll say, well, you know, and then start, you know, yeah. that's where some of the questions will come out. Right. Yeah, definitely. And do you reflect on your policies during this debrief? Really? Not unless it comes up. Like if there were some hot topic around Pitocin in the case, um, there might be some discussion. You know, if the nurse says, well, I didn't feel like it was in line with the, with the Pitocin policy, then the, then the physician might say, well, I realize that, but there's some situations where you have to individualize and going outside the policy is appropriate and here's why. And I think that's actually really valuable Very. because um, because we sometimes we don't always hear that from providers and, and nurses sometimes always think policy, 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 but there are appropriate times to go outside the policy. There just has to be clear communication around that. Ideally that happens before, yeah. <laughs> not when you're debriefing, but if you were unclear, then certainly, you know, you can um, have that dialogue. Okay. That's, that's very if there's lack of clarity, yeah, I mean, there's so many times where people will come to me after events and be like, you know, I don't know why this happened. And I would say, well, did you debrief? No. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I can't help you with that because I don't know what they were thinking at that time. Right. 
Yep. But everyone always has a perspective. Um, so yeah. And now, I think that's so valuable with debriefing is you get to hear everyone's perspectives. It makes you just recognize that you can't always look with your own blinders. Yeah. You have to recognize the shoes that other people are walking in. Yeah, I agree. And that's what kind of helps you work as a team, so to say, in that scenario. And like you said, it helps the teams become more and more effective um, and care-wise as, you know, these debriefs just keep happening. And now as a floor nurse, what would you suggest to me if I left a situation and it was so busy on the floor, no one wanted to debrief, but I felt like there were things that we needed to talk about that happened in this scenario. What would you suggest for me to do in order to kind of communicate that to the team as the floor nurse. So, so it's how I, I think it's most helpful to debrief immediately afterwards, but sometimes you can, um, you can pull the team together afterwards, even if it's a couple days and have that debriefing. So if that's something that's doable, um, you know, go, going to your, your, your nurse leader and, Asking if that's something that would be possible to coordinate, um, that's totally reasonable. Okay. Mm-hmm. I I think that in today's day and age, um, with all the shorting staff or the staffing shortages, it is hard to immediately get a debrief after something. Um, and I think it get that's why it's it's almost been getting like pushed by the wayside. Um, people simply just don't have time, and a lot of people are left to again go through this on their own, but they don't have the opportunity to communicate with the people in it to learn from the other people. Like you're just talking about that valuable perspective and information. And that's hard because then they kind of turn it in on themselves and they think, you know, it was my mistake. What like, it's all on me. And that's really hard for them to process. And there's no one to tell them, Hey, you know, it's okay. Just look at it in this perspective, or, you know, this is where our systems kind of failed us and it wasn't that effective. Um, and that's why, again, I think it's very important for, to have these debriefs, but it's also very hard these days. As a new grad, I find it hard to speak up and say, I think I need a debrief about this. Or I think I think there's a lot of things that didn't go well that I'm talking on the sidelines with my fellow nurses right now, but we should be talking about this together as a team. Um, you know, and I think that's very important, but it's hard for us to advocate for that conversation uh just because a lot of people don't have the time yeah yeah and that's why if you can pull the team together after the patient gets settled to just do a quick um i mean really you can do it in 10 minutes so that that maybe if you can kind of get into that habit but then option b is doing it's actually called a cold debrief where it's after the event, if you can pull people together, it just takes a little bit of coordination. Mm-hmm. And then the third option would be, you know, can your educator, your another nurse leader go through this, the scenario with you and maybe answer those specific questions. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really good advice. I think that's some quick tools that people can kind of use to not feel so alone after something like this happens. So thank you for that. Yeah, and no after a debrief, how should somebody feel? I know it's kind of a unique question, but ideally, you know, how should you leave this debrief feeling? Yeah, it, well, with a more clear understanding of of the situation, if there were any questions that were had. Um, oftentimes, I think people leave with some some key takeaways. 
Like they'll be like, oh, I didn't know I could do this, this, or this. Um, I didn't know the cooler was good for four hours with blood products or, you know, whatever, whatever the it is, but it is a way to reinforce processes. So, um, so that's really nice. And, and like, and like I had mentioned too, sometimes they learn, people just learn from each other, right? Senior staff learn from new staff, vice versa. Yeah. Um, so I think learn something new, more clear understanding, um, yeah, those are. Yeah, definitely. That's how I would want to feel leaving a debrief for sure. <laughs> um, and just, just to feel a little more supported. Um, and, you know, feel like it wasn't all on your back. Right. Absolutely. It and changes the conversation you have with yourself afterwards. Right. And, and don't forget too, if, if you're debriefing after an unexpected, let's say a bad event, it could be a, a situation where everyone did an incredible job right? So if you don't debrief, you might walk away feeling horrible. Yeah. And while you're still going to feel awful, if you debrief, it'll at least give you the satisfaction that like, this was an awful unexpected event, but we know we did everything possible for this patient. Yeah. Right. And that's really important. Um, because like you said, you, you, there can be a lot of unresolved angst um, uh, depression, a lot of things that can happen, at, at least after a traumatic event. But the other thing I wanted to mention is it's also good to debrief when things go well. Mm. We take it for granted, but, but if everything goes well, it's just good practice to take a few minutes with your team and to reinforce that. So yeah. can you imagine um, if you're a new nurse and, you know, everything seemingly, you know, everything goes well and the provider is like, wow, you did a great job or like, or he or she, or they tells you exactly what it is that they liked. And maybe you don't do that routinely. Well, you're like, oh yeah, well, I'm definitely going to do that now. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I think just having that opportunity to reinforce what's going well so that we can perpetuate that and spread that is really important. I agree to reinforce the good things as well as address errors. It's important to reinforce the good things that happened. I agree. That is important. And I will say one of the few debriefs I've been in was after, you know, something happened where um, it ended up with a, a bad outcome for the patient. Let's just say that. Um, but the doctors did everything right. The nurses did everything right. They responded as they should per the protocols, per their policies, um, but also just as general good practice. And they communicated well. And the debrief was just kind of touching on all those things. You know, like it's it, it stinks that this happened, but let's talk about all the different tools that we did correctly. Um, and it left people feeling a little better about the situation. And I was, I was seeing this as, I think I was like a student in nursing school at this point, And I left being introduced to a debrief, which was really cool for me. Um, Cause it's not, it wasn't really talked much about in nursing school, but also just kind of realizing this was important for every single person involved. It left them in a different mood. Um, it, everything felt a little less heavy afterwards. Um, and it was important for them to even, you know, congratulate each other on 
performing well and kind of reinforcing the fact that like we are doing great things <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and here's why. And I just thought that was so cool. So I, I've seen that firsthand, how debriefing after something happens um, that ended well, or that you, everything happened, you made no mistake and everything that you responded to was very good, even though it wasn't a good outcome. Those are all very important. Definitely. All right. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit after we, I just went on my mm-hmm. rant. I would like to first congratulate you on your new book that you had mentioned in the beginning. Um, for everyone who doesn't know, it's titled Obstetric and Neonatal Quality and Safety Study Guide, a Practical Resource for Perinatal Nurses. That's awesome. That is amazing. Tell us more about your motivation for writing the book and how readers can benefit from it. All right. Um, well, thank you. So uh, motivation, I was really just looking for a change. Um, I had been a perinatal safety nurse, been um, in the role formally and informally for about 10 years. Um, COVID hit. That was really, um, you know, a kick in the pants for everyone, right? Um, But I definitely felt burnt out. And I was just looking to do something different. I was listening to a lot of different podcasts and had seen this podcast and deliberately skipped it. So I'm like, oh, this is not for me. This is not for me. But then one day I was in the car and I was listening to one podcast and it just kind of flipped over into this. Yep. And I couldn't butts around with it because I was driving. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to have to listen to it. And then that's how I got the idea that, well, I could do this for, at the time it was a newly created NCC um, exam for obstetric and, and neonatal quality and safety. So that's how the idea came about. And it's been, it's taken like two and a half years and I just published it. So, but it's definitely been a huge journey, um, learning a lot about writing, um, researching the content, um, social media, yeah, developing a website. It's getting out um, of your comfort zone. Definitely. Yeah. What you wrote about was very much in your comfort zone, but everything after that, the, the process of publishing it out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Like there's so, there's so much. So uh, a close colleague of mine always says, well, you know, Jeanette, it's about the journey. So I, I always try to keep that in perspective when I want to be like, you know, a year ahead. Um, so it, it's been quite a journey and I've learned a lot. So it's been great. That's awesome. And how can readers benefit from reading this or using this study guide? Who is this geared towards? Bedside nurses, nurse leaders, um, and even nurse educators. Um, But those who are interested in taking the obstetric and neonatal quality and safety certification exam through NCC, um, it's based on the outline there. Um, Safety nurses, because it kind of, Covers not kind of, it covers a lot of the key concepts um, that are really important as a foundation for work as a perinatal safety nurse. And it's interesting in this role, what I'm finding as I talk to others, like there's no blueprint for the job description and it changes so much. But this gives a, a lot of um, basic foundational information that I think is helpful, especially when you're implementing change into practice. Mm. Um, Things to consider from the onset. Um, There's a lot of lessons in there that I put in that I learned the hard way. (laughs) 
<laughs> like planning, like planning for sustainability. Um, I mean, that's really the target audience. I'm hearing from people like there was a reader who reached out to me, who was an ED nurse who taught um, NRP, who bought the book and was finding it really useful. So, um, so it's really about all things quality and safety, right? Right. It has a lot of perinatal examples. It has examples though, from other, from medicine, from aviation, from, um, you know, just lots of different um, examples that I threw in there. But I I think for those who are looking to integrate change, who want more information on quality improvement models like Lean Six Sigma, IHI, who want to know about the pitfalls and challenging to integrating change, um, this is probably would be helpful. Error prevention strategies. The chapters are kind of like what I call bite-sized chapters, because I designed it in a way for busy people who are working to read at the end of the day. So it's not, I like to call it, it's not a PhD read. It's just, you know, I think it's, it's nicely written, but it's clear and simple and it's not too lengthy. It's to the point. And I liked what you just, I read some of the descriptions online and I loved how it said Jeanette takes breeders through hospital corridors, through patients' rooms. And that sounds like it adds up with your quick snippets because you're like, here's the real life example. Here's what's going to be what helps you remember it. Um, and I like I like that it's structured to know we like read at the end of the day. Um, I think that's going to be very useful and a lot more attractive for a lot of readers for sure. I love <laughs> that phrase. Um, and that's one thing that I... Um, wanted to point out because it really is written through the unique lens of someone who's worked in the field for a long time and gets it. Like I get, I feel strongly that I get healthcare. Um, And although I've been away from the bedside, one of the things that I think is most important is going to the people who are at the bedside and getting their input. You know, going whenever there was a problem or whenever there was initiative, I would go to my frontline staff and be like, what's going on? What do you guys think? How can we do this better? You know, and they just had awesome ideas. Um, I mean, and not everything stuck, obviously, but a lot of it did. Um, A lot of it worked. And, and that's how we really created effective change. So, so yeah, the book is, is kind of through that lens of really what, what works in practice and just having that, that experience. So your question was, what's the biggest takeaway? Yeah. Um, Going to the people who are doing the work. There you go. (laughs) Getting, getting people before you implement, Um, getting people to weigh in. Um, getting champions uh, when you're implementing change. That's powerful. That's very powerful. I love that. Well, it sounds like a great book. I'm excited. Um, I want to get my hands on it soon. How can listeners access your book? So it is only available on amazon.com. That's the U.S. website. So only available in the U.S. marketplace. I will link it in the show notes for everyone who's interested. And if anyone's interested in um, checking out the website, my website, it's obneonatalstudyguide.com. 
am hoping that it's updated by the time this podcast airs because <laughs> it doesn't say that the study guide is live, but you know it because I just said it. Exactly. But um, yeah. Hearing it live, everyone. You're hearing it live. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. That's great. I will link everything in the show notes um, and we'll get everyone access to those website and the link for Amazon. All right. So now I'm going to close this out. Uh, okay. I ask this to every interviewer that comes on our interviewee, I should say, uh, what is one old or new way you like to take more than 10 seconds to process something high stress in your life? Well, whenever there's anything high stress, I usually pause and take a deep breath, take a couple deep breaths. Um, because I usually like, like if I'm nervous, I just take a deep breath. It just calms me down and there is physiology behind that. So, um, it does, it's connected somehow to that parasympathetic rest and digest response. And it does physiologically slow down that heart rate. So that's one way that I um, try to kind of keep it together in a high stress situation. Um, the other thing is I work, just try not to react. If I can like step away and like wait to have a reaction to something, um, it is usually so much better because I'm just in a much better mind frame. Mm. So you almost, you almost wait to process and feel the feelings behind it out until you are in a more private setting. Mm-hmm. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with me today and with the listeners. I think that everyone's going to learn so much from everything you said, and I'm very excited for your book. Um, congratulations on that. And yeah, is there anything else you'd like to add? Just wanted to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak here today. Um, it's It's been great. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm so happy you joined. All right, everyone. Thank you. All right, friends. It is that time where I must love and leave you. Do yourself a favor today and find a way to give yourself more than 10. If you like this podcast and would like to leave a comment on the Podbean app, that would mean so much. Even more so, a share on any social media platform or to a friend would be much appreciated. As always, thanks for listening. I look forward to seeing you back on the next episode. 